Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is February the 4th, 2022. I'm talking to you, as always, from San Francisco on the edge of Silicon Valley. It's been quite a week here in terms of the ups and downs of big tech stocks, people walking around with big smiles on their faces if they're working for Google, less smiles if they're working for Facebook or PayPal. An interesting week in economics and certainly an interesting uh, conversation when it comes to the broader uh, economic situation in the United States. Uh, New York Times today reports a, a strong jobs report, uh, a resilience of economic recovery. That's the good news. Um, and according to the New York Times, it gives Washington and the Biden administration an easier talking point. That's a euphemism, I guess, a talking point. Um, we're all unsure about the economy particularly because however many jobs there are, however ebullient the economy is, there is also inflation. And inflation soars. The central bank scrambles to lift rates, according to the Wall Street Journal. We might all have jobs. We might all have money. But that money is worth less and less. Uh, it's not just in the United States. The Times also ran a piece on the UK, the headline from Liverpool to London tighter wallets and colder homes. I'm not sure if the wallets are tighter. They're fatter and tighter at the same time, which is the problem with inflation. We have more money, but it buys less. Um, Larry Summers, someone never shy to uh, articulate his opinion. He's someone who some people love, some people hate. He says on inflation in the post today, uh, we can learn from the mistakes of the past or repeat them. That always seems to be the story with inflation. We all have very selective memories in historical terms of what we can and can't learn from the past. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I had Peter Goodman on the show, New York Times economics correspondent, wrote a book about Davos Man. At the end of the book, he strongly suggested that we get our guest on the show today, uh, he's the author of The Lords of Easy Money. He's um, Goodman's colleague at the New York Times, Christopher Leonard. Uh, the book also uh, came up uh, earlier this week. I was talking to the Union Square venture, cap uh, venture capitalist, Albert Wenger, old friend of mine. He uh, has a new book out, The World After Capital, in which he also mentioned The Lords of Easy Money. This is a hot new book about a very complicated subject about the value of money and how in the subtitle of the book, how the Federal Reserve broke the American economy, quite a, a sharp subtitle. So Chris, welcome. Um, inflation, jobs, is the economic outlook good or bad? What's actually going on? And uh, uh, Jerome Powell, perhaps not someone you have a great deal of admiration for, seems cheerful, but of course, politicians, or bureaucrats appointed by politicians have to be cheerful. What's the situation in your sense when it comes to this weird situation between lots of money, lots of inflation, and lots of jobs? Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, last week I was talking with a former central banker in Ireland, actually, and, and he told me this quote that 
uh, someone told him when he first joined the central bank, which is that one of the primary jobs when central bankers are speaking to the public is to, quote, not to scare the horses. And what they meant by that, which I think is frankly kind of a condescending view, but it's this idea that you don't panic markets. Uh, you speak in this sort of calm tone uh, with a mastery of, of detail and, and pretend like everything's fine. And when you talk about the Fed chairman, Jay Powell, that's sort of exactly how I see his public stance lately. Uh, Jay Powell has been um, you know, giving lots of public testimony where he says that, yes, we have price inflation now, not just in the United States, but across the globe. And the Fed, the central bank, has the tools to control inflation and that it can respond appropriately and slow down this inflation. And I think that kind of statement is, is grossly misleading, to be honest. You know, you ask me my, my thoughts on where we are right now. And in this book, I try to walk through carefully what's happened over the last decade. And it has led me to the conclusion that we are in a terribly fragile place at the moment, uh, economically and in, in terms of our financial markets. And to me, the basic dynamic is this. Central banks have taken center stage in our economic system over the last decade. The economist Mohammed El Aryan phrased it as central banks have been the only game in town. They have been driving growth and they have been doing it by creating new money at unprecedented scale and speed. Maybe you started college but haven't finished. Are you looking for an accredited institution with a rich heritage in technology? Look to DeVry University. Founded in 1931, DeVry delivers technology-focused education that you can earn on your own time with the flexibility of online classes. Save time and money with qualifying transfer credits and reignite your career path. Scholarships and grants are available to those who apply and qualify. Visit devry.edu forward slash future to learn more. That's devry.edu forward slash future. Restrictions apply. Details at devry.edu. Chris, this is called, um, and, and again, I borrow from one of your colleagues at the Times, uh, 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 it's not their phrase, uh, quantitative easing, isn't it? Um, this is the, and, and here from the Times, we have a chart of the way no, quantitative perfect. easing began in. Perfect. Uh, began in 2009 and ramped up to almost four and a half trillion by 2014, which they claim it ended. But of course, this was before COVID. So what exactly is quantitative easing? And, and, and why is it, a, in your view, a bad, problematic, worrying thing? And, and if I could please hasten to add, I don't work at the, at the New York Times. I've published there. I publish op-eds there. Apologies. Uh, Whoops. That's terrible. I really... Uh... I don't mean to say it in that way at all. I just don't in any way want to misrepresent myself. Um, New York Times is such a great newspaper. I rely on it every single day and, and wouldn't want to, you know, pretend like I work there because I don't. Um, I publish articles. You do write for it. But uh, yeah, I That's apologize. Right. You're, not a, you're not like Goodman or some of the others. You're not a full-time uh, correspondent. Exactly right. Exactly right. So that, that chart you just showed, 
explains why I wrote this book. And I think it is the perfect chart to show what has happened over the last decade. And it captures a moment in time. This program, yes, it's called quantitative easing. And it's really money creation. And I'm going to call it money printing for the purposes of our conversations, even though the Fed it doesn't print the dollars. It, it creates the dollars and the Treasury actually prints the bills. Okay, that flat line to the left represents the slow and steady money creation that's happened in the in the first century of the Fed's existence. That line you see goes at a steady rate all the way back to 1913, where it kind of descends down to zero. And, and what it shows is that over a century, the Fed sort of gradually and slowly increased the money supply. And then the world changed with the crash of 2008. And, and the Fed just printed a swell of new dollars to help uh, sort of put out the fire of the financial crisis of 08. But the and it was a serious crisis, Chris. I mean, we're not talking oh. about some minor little fire somewhere. I mean, the whole of Wall Street was 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 on fire, uh, right? No question about it. I mean, it was an epical collapse of the global financial system. And, and the whole reason we have a central bank is to step in and create money at a time like that to stop a panic. Um, I, you know, there's very little dispute that the Fed should have been aggressive in that moment. What I write about is what comes next in 2010. That's when the economy is slowly recovering from the financial crisis, slowly, unsatisfactorily, growth was weak. And that's when the Fed embarked on this experimental path of quantitative easing. So during the 2010s, the Fed does two unprecedented and extraordinary things. It keeps the interest rate pegged at zero for seven years, okay? We had never done that before. And at the same time that interest rates are so low, the Fed ramps up money creation, as that chart showed, printing trillions of dollars. The way I put it is that the Fed prints about 350 years worth of money in about four and a half years, that period from 2010 up to uh, you know 2014, and 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 that chart ends with with the monetary base at about four and a half trillion, or rather the Fed's balance sheet, which reflects how much money it's printing. It's now more than it's double that. Uh, you know, since that time, we've only doubled down on, Chris, on this um, program. There's so much to unravel here. Yes. And I have lots of different questions. Let me throw another one at you. We had the um, the economist, uh, Stephanie Kelton on the show, uh, talking about the deficit myth, modern monetary theory. She seems to say, and excuse me again, if my observations are a little bit simplistic, but she seems to say, and modern monetary theory seems to suggest that you can indeed just print money. Is, is, is she wrong? She's not wrong that you can do it. And we have done it. And, and we've engaged in this experimental program. Uh, let me please talk about what the side effects and consequences have been. That's why I wrote the book. That's what I'm talking about when I say the Fed broke the American economy and why we're in such a fragile state today. Well, broke some of it. I mean, it broke it for half of the Americans. For the rest of us, we're actually all doing rather well at the moment. Uh, these programs overwhelmingly benefited the top 1%. When the Fed prints money, it stokes the market for assets, okay? This program of money creation on Wall Street, which is where the Fed creates new dollars, it stoked up the price of stocks, corporate debt, commercial real estate, tech stocks, go down the list. 
in in America, one percent of the population owns forty percent of all the assets. The bottom half of Americans own only five percent. What I'm saying is that this program dramatically widened the gap between the very rich and the and everybody else, while increasing the levels of debt and and pumping up these asset bubbles on on Wall Street that make our financial system so fragile and prone to crashes. That has been the consequence of, of these programs. Um, you wrote an interesting piece um, in Politico. And as I said, you I made the mistake of associating you too closely with the Times. You, you write for them, but you're, a, you're an author and you write for lots of different publications. You, you, you wrote, and then here's the headline, at least from the a November 2021 uh, article you wrote. Jerome Powell's Fed policies have boosted the system that made him rich. Here we have a picture of Powell. You're not a great admirer of him. Are you suggesting that Powell and his cronies at the Federal Reserve, they know exactly what they're doing? Is this a, perhaps to use Marxist language, is this a, a concerted effort by a, a certain social class to make itself richer, more powerful? I, I don't want to oversimplify it. That story that you showed traces the, the the source of Jay Powell's wealth is is from the private equity industry. That's where this guy became a multimillionaire. He's probably the richest chairman in Fed history. And he did it by participating in a private equity business that uses leveraged loans and corporate debt to buy out companies and then saddle those companies with debt, which leads to the layoffs and offshoring we're so familiar with. And And what I show is how the Fed's policies supercharge the private equity industry and, and the Wall Street speculation. You know, what I'm trying to say again and again is that these policies create winners and losers in our economy. The Fed leadership isn't just solving math equations. It's making decisions about how to, how to operate our, our financial system. And quantitative easing, just categorically, this isn't in dispute. But you're, you're, you're sort of slightly dodging the question, Christopher. Um... Do people well, like Powell question, know what they're doing? I mean, is this when when he makes and, and when the Federal Reserve make their decisions? Do you think, at least in the back of their mind, might even be conscious that they are somehow benefiting themselves and their friends? I guess what I was trying to point out is I, I lay out a long history in that article of the private equity industry, how it made Jay Powell rich, how the Fed has supercharged it now. Is this guy, Jay Powell, sitting there at the Fed saying, if I make this decision, it's going to boost my retirement account where I've stashed all these millions I earned in private equity? I don't think it's that simple. I, I do think if you step back and look at who wins consistently from the Fed's policies, it's the biggest of the big banks, the richest of the rich Americans, and the shadow banking system, like this private equity business. This isn't a very, uh, it's not a simple corrupt system of quid pro quo and i'm just looking to enrich myself but it, it's that the people who run the fed are from a certain world they speak with people from a certain world and i'm talking about the hedge funds the private equity firms jp morgan goldman sachs and and those entities you know their interests are heard and they win from these policies time and again and and the fact that they've won isn't beyond dispute. I mean, the, the too big to fail banks before 08 are now larger and less able to fail. 
the top 1% have gained tremendously in wealth, even since the COVID crash, and the Fed's policies support that dynamic. You're also the author, many people will know, of Koch Land, the secret history of the Koch Industries and corporate power in America, as well as the meat racket, the secret takeover American America's food business. The system's rotten, Christopher, isn't it? From the Koch brothers to the meat industry to Wall Street, something's gone profoundly wrong in America. Is that fair? It, it, it's absolutely fair. I mean, to say the following thing, which is that right now in America, I, th I think the one of the primary questions I'm I'm, I'm interested in as a reporter is how how is our system developed to to become one where we can have a decade of economic growth but the gains are captured by a very small group of people uh, corporations have more power in america than they've had in 100 years our economy benefits fewer people than it has benefited in 100 years i'm going back to the gilded era and so all these books try to look at different elements of this equation. The first one about the meat business is about monopolies and how they control markets. Uh, with Coke Land, we're looking at the role of corporations in, in public influence, the death of labor unions. And then with the Fed, I'm looking at how the central bank is supercharging the Wall Street system and enriching asset owners uh, at, at the expense of the middle class who've watched their wages stagnate, who've seen their jobs become more precarious. The Fed is a critical part of this story, and it's a part that I don't think is well enough understood. And we've had so many conversations about this. That's why your work is, is, is critically important. I had George Packer on the show, his format narratives now dominating American life. Everyone trying to explain populism, Trump, inequality. We've had Evan Osnos on the show, Wildland, the making of American America's Fury. I think the argument you lay out in the Lords of Easy Money is critical. You are joining the dots in terms of making sense of all the paradoxes, the political and socioeconomic paradoxes in America in 2022, right? Yes. And, and if I could try to restate it simply, the Fed's programs of 0% interest rates and all these money, all this money printing has created weak economic growth. It has not benefited wage earners in America, but it has dramatically benefited asset holders. And it, it's also laid the groundwork for these periodic financial market crashes we have. And, and so I, I'm trying to explain in, in a mechanical way why this is the case, how when the Fed undertakes these policies, why it's benefiting the rich. That's what I'm trying to show uh, here. And, you know, the Fed, I, I really think it's fair to say the Fed cloaks itself in complexity. The, the Federal Reserve leaders try to talk about what they're doing as if it's hyper advanced rocket science and normal people can't understand it. In fact, it's not that complicated when you really take some time to understand it. Yeah. And that's why we need um, journalists like Christopher Leonard um, to make complexity coherent. There was an interesting piece in Slate um, yesterday, uh, Chris. The fate of Joe Biden's presidency is in Jerome Powell's hands, and history suggests he'll blow it by Jordan Weissman. Do you, do you, do you agree with Weissman? Is ultimately, um, is, is, is Powell a bit of a schmuck when it comes down to it? Uh, I have not read that article. And Jay Powell, you know, my first chapter about him 
where I profile him, I call him the fixer. I mean, this is a guy who is an absolute creature of Washington, D.C. He's rotated back and forth between high finance and big government, from the Department of Treasury to the to private equity firm Carlyle Group. He's very good at trying to meet the needs of big government and big money. Then that's that story in, in Fortune kind of tells that history. Jay Powell has tried to do the political expedient thing. I think it's fair to say during his career as Fed chairman, uh, he has kept pumping this money. E every time the markets start to fall, he keeps the money spigot on, even though it's raising the other risks like asset bubbles and inflation. The, the problem with that Jay Powell faces right now is that there's no easy path out of where the Fed has put itself. It has been spending a decade patiently pumping up these asset bubbles on Wall Street. And now that we have hot inflation, the Fed is being forced to pull back. So it either pulls back and these markets react negatively and we see market prices fall and a lot of volatility and even a crash, or Jay Powell doesn't tighten and we could potentially see this inflation grow even more extreme and become more entrenched. So. It, you know, I don't know what the author means when he says Jay Powell is going to blow it. What, what I'm trying to communicate is that there's no easy pathway out of this. And we need to understand the dynamics of what's going on. And it, it does trace back to decisions the Fed's been making over a decade. This is great stuff. Christopher Leonard, author of Lords of Easy Money. Um, wonderful book. Very readable. We're going to take a break, Chris. Um, and after the break, I want to talk about the book itself. There are three main characters. You've already talked about Powell. I want to talk about Thomas Honig, and I also want to talk about one of the victims of this racket, I guess we could describe it as, uh, people who, who, who are actually human beings who are suffering as a consequence of, um, of, of, of this economic mismanagement. Uh, we'll be back, Chris, in about 60 seconds. Hold tight, everybody. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox, or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live. You can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So 
whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now, back to Keenan. We are back with Christopher Leonard. Doesn't work for the New York Times. I got that wrong. It's first <laughs> the last time I will make serious errors, but uh, he has written for them. And more, more importantly, he's the author of a really important new book, The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. And in particular, he profiles Jay Powell, who he's not a great fan of. Um, but there are good guys in the book. Uh, you also profile um, a man called Thomas Honig. Uh, you have a, um, a, a piece in Politico. Uh, the Fed's doomsday prophet has a dire warning about where we're heading. Uh, where we're headed. Uh, Koenig is the anti-Powell. What is it about Koenig that makes him the good guy, the wise guy in this brewing crisis, Chris? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, to to rewind the clock, the Fed in 2010 went down an experimental path of quantitative easing, money creation, zero percent interest rates. Thomas Honig was in a leadership role at the Fed at the time, and he voted against this action. He voted not to do quantitative easing or keep interest rates at zero. And, and frankly, I don't want to say he ruined his career, but he staked his career on that stand. And he's been remembered as sort of a crank and a dissenter. But when I went back and researched the story, I, I found his personal story and his theories about monetary policy very, very compelling. And, and to me, the key thing is this. The guy had been with the Fed for 30 years. He joined in 1972. He had seen what could happen when the central bank got it wrong. And, and critically, when it kept money too easy for too long. He saw the great inflation of the 70s. He saw the dot-com bust of the 90s, the housing bust of the 2000s. And he was warning the Fed not to go down this path. And, and I guess what makes him, frankly, a hero in my mind is that he stood on principle. He voted no. There were a lot of leaders who had deep concerns about this, and you can see it from the internal transcripts. They were arguing against it, but only Honig voted against it. And he paid a big price for standing up. Is this the same uh, learning from history that Larry Summers talks about? I, I don't know what it is about Summers, but nobody seems to like him. Um, <laughs> Is he right? And is Summers the kind of guy who always goes with, I, I don't want to focus on Summers, but is he the kind of guy who sort of symbolizes the way in which people always go with the majority until that changes and then they change their minds? Is it easy now to be much more critical of quantitative easing than it was 10 years ago? That is absolutely true. It's easier now. And it's so interesting. It, it, it's been it's getting more baked into the cake and you're seeing, you know, front page stories on the Wall Street Journal now talking about the stock market being pumped up to incredibly high levels by the Fed's money printing, quantitative easing. Uh, five years ago, views like that were being shouted down in Washington, D.C. And and so, yes, it's it's much easier to criticize it now than it was back in 2010. That's for sure. And and. I do think it's a case of of learning from history. And, and you know, Honig, interestingly, he's he's characterized now as a dissenter, but during most of his career, he voted yes. He voted along with the committee and, and came to regret it in some cases. 
in the sense that he saw how they stoked the the dot-com bubble of the 90s. He saw how they kept interest rates too low in the 2000s and pumped up the housing bubble, which crashed. So it really was lessons learned from, from what he'd seen. The system, though, let's go back to the broader system in terms of, uh, you know, we had um, we had Adam Tooze on the show, who whose book crashed, I think, joins, according to Jennifer Zalai, who gave your book a very nice review, less, less kind to some of my other guests this week. Um, Tooze connects all this with the international financial system. You focus on the US, but how does this connect with the global system? And, and how do the Chinese play into this? Because, again, excuse the naivety of the question, but the more money that is printed by the Fed, the more powerful China becomes as 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 uh, uh, as America's major creditor. Is that fair? Um, in, in a significant way, that's very fair, and I don't think it's naive at all. Uh, Crashed is a magnificent book that I devoured when it came out, and it really was very helpful to, to, to see this in a global context. And then Tuz's book about the COVID crash, Shutdown, also just magnificent. So it's so interesting. Yes, I focus very exclusively on the U.S. central bank, although, of course, you talk about other banks, but the Fed serves such a central and important role because as you know, you know the U.S. dollar is the global reserve currency, right? It, it's it's what banks around the world use as their reserve or backup. The same with like petro nations. Uh, so the dollar is the United States currency, but it's also a global currency. And so the decisions of the Fed have a direct uh, consequence to to the global system. I mean, w- when we had the crash of 08, and then the COVID crash of 2020, foreign central banks were scrambling to get dollars. And that's why, you know, one of the things Tooze uh, demonstrated in this book is how the U.S. would pump dollars out into the fin- international financial system through these things called swap lines. So the dollar is extraordinarily powerful. I call the Fed the world central bank. But to your bigger question, it is helpful to remember, in my mind, uh, when we talk about China's power and U.S. debt, you've got the United States government that borrows money, and, it, and the U.S. government borrows money by selling treasury bills. The Fed does something different. It creates dollars, okay? So you've got the United States government borrowing money in the form of treasury bills. Then you've got the Fed printing dollars, and these things are tightly intertwined, but they're different. And for many years, China was buying those treasury bills. But now, uh, of course, China still is, but you know, the Fed is oddly enough buying a lot of these treasury bills. And, and we're in this- So it's sort of lending to itself, essentially. Yeah, they call it monetizing the debt. I, I just, I can't overstate what uncharted territory we're in so right now. What does now. that mean? I mean, it means they can keep on printing money to borrow from themselves to keep their debt. But at a certain point, this- as Larry Summers suggested, I mean, I don't want to bring up Weimar or Hitler or anything, but um, there are historical precedents for this. There are absolutely historical precedents. And since the COVID crash, the United States government has been spending trillions of dollars, all of it borrowed. But it's not even that. It's As you say, the Treasury bill is selling, uh, the government is selling Treasury bills that the Fed is buying with money the Fed creates out of thin air. So the Fed is just printing money to support the U.S. federal government right now. 
And so that immediately raises these concerns about hyperinflation and devaluation. Again, what makes us so different is that the U.S. dollar is the global reserve currency. So we can get away with doing things like this for a long time. There well, is a, a long line. time, Chris, is what? A century? 50 years? 10 years? There's a red line out there somewhere whereby global markets lose faith in the dollar and they start forcing the U.S. government to pay higher interest rates to borrow or the, the value of the dollar crashes or, you know, another currency like the, the, the uh, Chinese yuan, um, Bitcoin, the euro. Right. I, wanted to ask, I wanted to ask the Bitcoin question of how all this plays into the cryptomania and the success of crypto in seizing the imagination, particularly of, of, of young speculators. Yes, because, you know, as I was saying, you reach that red line where the dollar will fail and then we will see Weimar Republic. Where's that red line? We don't know, but we seem determined to find it. It might be 10 years away, it might be 100 years away. You said it, Christopher. We'll see the Weimar Republic. Are you suggesting that's inevitable? Is it avoidable? I mean, we have in America at the moment, a, a, I think to be kind, a gerontocratic president who, who barely knows his own name, let alone can get his figure out a way of, out of this situation. I mean, can we confront this? What, what needs to be done? To be clear, I'm not saying it's inevitable. There's a red line we'll cross when we crash the system by printing so much money, taking on so much debt. I don't know where that is. Is it 5, 10, 100 years from now? Does it never come? Does it come tomorrow? We don't know. So that's the big question. And, and you know, to your point about Bitcoin. It's, it's, it is the critical question of the 21st century. Yes. Yes. I mean, well, there is a still, you know, we can keep on blowing up the bubble, but there is a dark side, which you talk about in the book. You profile a worker, uh, I think from Indianapolis, who is a casualty of this. There are millions of Americans who are losing their jobs, who are suffering from inflation, who are experiencing the, the crisis on the front lines of this, the crisis created by people like Jay Powell. Uh, talk to me about the third character in the book after Powell and Honig. Yeah, John Feltner. The, the middle part of the book is about the American economy during the 2010s under this regime of money printing. And, and I'm just showing how little benefit it ever delivered to the average wage earner in America. And this guy you're talking about, John Feltner, is a... Yeah, I had an image of him and I stupidly deleted it but uh, Feltner is a uh, is is an example of the white working class I guess who who are suffering from this uh, losing their jobs losing not losing their homes but he's a real person experiencing the ups and downs of this strange economy exactly and he works at a company that J Rexrod is the company called Rex what's it called Rexrod Rexnord Rexnord yeah uh, it's an it's an old school industrial conglomerate based out of Milwaukee, and it happens to be a company that Federal Chairman Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell bought when he was in private equity. Okay. Oh my and, God, Powell is everywhere. Powell is everywhere, and so Jay Powell bought Rexnord using leveraged loans, loaded down the company with debt. And what I'm trying to say is that during the 2010s, this company Rexnord made more money 
through financial shenanigans of selling more corporate junk debt, of doing stock buybacks, all these maneuvers that were encouraged by the Fed's money printing policies. Okay, in this kind of world, it's it's more profitable to sell junk debt than to make widgets. And and you see the effect on this company. This company, like many in America, was paying more in interest rates than it was earning in profit. You know, so under that pressure, they they shut down the factory where where Feltner had been working for years and outsourced the production to Mexico. And and I, I felt like Feltner was a great case study in the American wage earner over the last decade, while the owners of capital have been reaping unprecedented gains. And meanwhile, they're buying the populist lies of, of, of Trump and others. I mean, not just in the United States, around the world. So the politics of this are particularly disturbing, aren't they? Yeah, this guy, I mean, Trump, it's so interesting. This company, Rexnord in Milwaukee, was ground zero for the Trump campaign. You remember, I mean, Trump was talking about punishing U.S. companies if they shifted jobs to Mexico. And Trump specifically singled out Carrier, Air Conditioning, and Rexnord. And, and Trump made a huge display of talking about how he would punish these firms. And, and workers like John Feltner responded to that. You know, they felt like this was the first politician in decades who'd said he was going to put American jobs first. Now, the promises didn't materialize. Uh, the jobs shifted to Mexico anyway. Uh, but, um, yeah, I think it does help describe a lot of the appeal of Trumpism in, in the middle part of America. Chris, finally, um, we've had so many conversations about this. It is the, the key issue in so many levels. We had the UC Berkeley economist Gabriel Zuckman on the show, uh, student of Piketty, very influential economist. He's perhaps done more than most economists to chart the rise of inequality. I had him on a couple of years ago at the beginning of COVID. He talks about raising taxes. Is one way out of this to simply raise taxes? Is that the political fix? Well, it's a part I mean, of taxes, at least on the rich, on the on the beneficiaries of this system, on the J pals of this world. I, I would describe it as necessary, but not adequate. I mean, uh, the, the tax structure has to be dealt with. I write a lot about what happened in the U.S. in the in the 1930s under the so-called New Deal. That was an interlocking set of policies. They broke up the big banks under the New Deal. They regulated the monopolies. They empowered labor unions, empowered the American worker, and passed taxes on the rich. It's with that sort of multi-pronged approach that you can start to fight inequality. It's no coincidence that American prosperity was most broadly shared between 1935 and 1975. That was you're too hard-headed a journalist to believe that we can go back to the 1930s. We've we've had that conversation again so many times. Oh, all we need to do is return to the the New Deal. You can't do that in a globalized economic world, can you? Well, it's funny because in many ways we're back in the 1930s in terms of the inflation and and financial fragility, um, the rise of populism and the allure of authoritarianism. So to me, what was key was that we had FDR as president in the 1930s to steer us down the New Deal path instead of an authoritarian uh, right-wing fascist path as happened in many nations in Europe. So uh, to me... I don't want to be naive or delusional about the difficulties, but uh, 
you know, democratic action of the kind where people can empower themselves and control monopolies, it's not out of the question. It's hard work. It takes time. But it, no, I don't think it's out of the question at all. Well, certainly what is hard work and took time is uh, Christopher Leonard's new book, The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy, a critically important book, clearly, trying to make sense of this surreal socioeconomic and political moment we're in in February 22. Chris, congratulations on, on the book. I, I think it's going to win a lot of awards this year. It's one of the most important books written. Um, and you don't write for the New York Times. I apologize <laughs> for that. What else should people be reading in these strange times? You also suggested that Adam Tooze's book is good. I assume you've looked at Goodman's book on, on Davos Man. Um, what about all these books on, on, on the rotten uh, financial system globally? We had Casey and Michelle on uh, Dirty Money. Are there? Is this another piece of this? It, it is. I'm, I'm looking back at my bookshelf here. Um, you know, it's funny. It, this is coincidental, but honestly, Davos Man by Peter S. Goodman really comes to mind as a great global survey of, of the sort of power held by... You are in my favor, Chris. He recommended your book. I, I'm joking. They, they certainly are, need to be read hand in hand. Yeah. And, and, and George Packer's book, Last Best Hope. I mean, when yeah. we talk about this necessity of democratic action that we've kind of been touching on, I, I feel like that book was so powerful and so well put. That, that was a, a bombshell of a book I read this summer. Yeah, um, I'm, uh, I'm going to Amsterdam actually in April to interview uh, Packer Live for my How to Fix Democracy series. He's always, he, it, excusing the pun, he's always on the money. Yeah, and, and that's one of the just fundamental questions. Uh, how do we get them, our democratic institutions to function again? Uh, yeah, critical. Yeah. Any other books apart from Packer and Goodman? Uh, well, I, Tooze's shutdown about the COVID crash is a wonderful yeah. uh, survey of, of what happened. A clear-eyed, great book. Tooze was also on my How to Fix Democracy series. Well, at least we've got smart, clear-eyed journalists like Christopher Leonard making sense of our predicament. Chris, congratulations on the book. Um, the Lords of Easy Money, it's just out. It's, uh, it's going to be one of the big books of the year. It's going to win lots of awards, deservedly. I'd love to have you back on the show, Chris, because there's so much more to unpack here. And, and you're one of the few journalists able to do serious analytical research at the same time as actually joining the dots on the bigger picture. So uh, we'll perhaps talk again later in the year. But thank you so much. It's a wonderful conversation. Well, I appreciate it, really. Thank you for the great questions. I appreciate it.